Hush, hush, hush. Here comes the boogeyman. Don't let him come too close to you. He'll catch you if he can. Welcome to Boggart and the Banshee, a supernatural podcast. I'm Chris, the relentlessly informative. I study ghosts, Fortiana, fashion history, and death. And I'm Simon, Chris's worst nightmare. I study boggets, fairies, urban legends, and the impossible. Hello, I'm Chris Woodyard, a writer and historian from Ohio. And I'm Simon Young, a British writer based in Italy. And today, rather than studying a single case, we'll be looking at a supernatural category, the death omen or token of death, as it's sometimes known in the 19th century. So, Chris, I have to stop you there straight away. And as someone who knows very little about death and very little about omens, ask you what we actually mean by a death omen. I was quite surprised I couldn't find an actual dictionary definition of death omen per se. An omen, of course, is an event regarded as a portent of good or evil. Uh, The death omens I'll be discussing are generally things that seem to have a genuine physical presence, but may or may not be real. For example, a rooster crowing in the middle of the night is considered by some cultures to be a death omen. Ghostly birds hovering over deathbeds are another. One is corporeal but symbolic, and the other not so much. So when I discuss death omens, I generally leave out apparitions and dreams, although they're frequently found in the same context. I also differentiate between folk beliefs, ghostly lights that indicate death, for instance, and memorates where someone reports seeing those ghostly lights. Let me give you an example of several death omens in one story. A woman and her husband once lived three miles from town, and one night her husband had to go away. Her mother and father lived down the lane apiece, so her mother came up to spend the night with her. After a while, they saw a light shining on the wall, so they went to the window and raised it, and they called out, what do you want? But it did not answer, so they called out again, but it did not answer. Then they called once more what it wanted, and it said, nothing, nothing, nothing. So pretty soon it disappeared and it went off down the lane. They got up and dressed and went to the father's house and knocked on the door and asked if he was dead. And he said, no, but I soon will be because I had a token. I heard the hearse come and take the coffin out and open the lid. Then they shut it up and drove off. So uh, a merry start to this episode of ours on death tokens. We have a double whammy here. If I understood this correct, the woman has the sign, but simultaneously the father has a different sign, both pointing towards a death. Is that right? Right. You've got the woman and her mother seeing a light shining on the wall. We might call that a corpse candle if we lived in Wales. And then you've got the father hearing the noise of the hearse and hearing the noise of the coffin and the noise of the lid. That's a very common token where you just hear something sinister like that. There's a whole genre of death omens where you hear a coffin being built or you hear the sounds of the funeral. So yeah, there were like two different types of death omens in that story. We've talked about poltergeists. We've talked about ghosts. We've talked about fairies. I feel that in my own life, within my family circle and the circle of my friends, I've come across people who've had these experiences. I can't think off the top of my head of anyone I know who has ever experienced the death omen. 
is this perhaps something that belongs more to the past than to the present? I don't see that. In some of the online boards that I follow about ghost stories and things, people do report something mysterious happened. And then I knew that meant that so-and-so was going to die. I have a friend who had several things happen. An item from the family that was on the wall very securely sort of leaped off the wall. And a month and a day later, the aunt with whom that item was associated died. There was also a case, the same person said, their second floor bedroom. They heard something hammering on the outside on the second floor. There's no way to get up to this. There's no trees. Wham, 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 like a giant fist. And a month and a day later, the father died. So there are still things reported. I don't think we can say that it's quite as extensive. I don't know that we have all the ideas about what constitutes a death omen, but I heard a lot about these things when I was growing up. And I still get a little nervous when I hear an owl hooting in the backyard. Mm. Did you hear stories about death omens growing up? Uh, Not at all. And I I think perhaps one feature of my life, and Chris, maybe this is a difference between my generation and your generation, I'm slightly younger than you, is that really I've not come that much into contact with death in my life. I've been probably to five or six funerals. I've known people who have died, of course, in a couple of cases, I've witnessed deaths. But it, it's not. it seems to me that death doesn't loom quite as large in my wow. generation as it did in yours, let alone, say, my grandparents' generation. And I, I wonder if this is the reason that I've not had that much experience of death omens. The only example I can think of from my personal experiences, I did have for a period in my 20s, a Spanish girlfriend, a wonderful young woman. And she used to claim that she could smell when people were going to die. But Mm. I wonder if there there's not a simple physiological reason. But this isn't grandfather clocks falling down the stairs or roosters in the middle of the night or fairies building coffins. So I throw that out there. Just to just to give some semblance of experience, but really, I feel completely out of my depth with this material. Well, I've spoken to several people in my circle, and a lot of them had no experience whatsoever hearing about death omens. Their death was simply not talked about in their family. And I know that younger generations than mine, people have been reluctant. It seems to like take children to funerals. I grew up going to funerals. I can remember being three years old, playing on the floor in front of my great aunt's coffin and being fascinated by the whole thing. But it seems to be more these days, people think it's uh, going to be somehow harmful to children to go in and and see a dead body, uh, no matter who they are. So I, I think there probably is a sense that some death omens are on their way out because we don't talk about death as much, although there is a movement to try to remedy that, especially when so many people have died in the uh, pandemic. But I don't know whether we can say that it's completely dead, as it were. I I suppose there's also another side to this, that in the past, people were much more likely to die suddenly. Children particularly died Mm -hmm. quite regularly of infectious diseases. Accidents Mm -hmm. were more common and more deadly in the sense that if you fell off a cart, say, and hurt yourself, the chances of getting you to a hospital and the chances of people in that hospital, say in the 1920s, being actually able to do something were, were rather slighter than they are today. And surely the majority of people who die today, well, they're certainly a lot older, but also I would guess that in most cases, 
perhaps most isn't right there, but in many, many cases, they know they're dying. So people do have sudden heart attacks. But if you think of these long drawn out deaths with cancer, etc., there's usually a dismal crescendo in the family as we move closer and closer yeah. to, to the final curtain. And I, I wonder if in that sense, death has just become a lot more predictable. And so in that sense, death omens matter much less. Whereas in the past, things must have just seemed so random and also, death must have seemed much closer all the time. Definitely, uh, it was much closer. In the midst of life, we are in death was no idle sentiment to the yes. people of the 19th century. And you you couldn't count on, you did have lengthy deaths. You'd had long, long drawn out deaths. So we can't say that it wasn't predictable in some cases, but you had cholera, you had childbirth, exploding kerosene lamps. You, you know not what hour your Lord doth come was no idle threat. And it was thoroughly understood that life had limits. In old obituaries, we sometimes see something about how he or she had exceeded his or her three score and 10, that nominal biblically ordained span of a human life of 70 years. Mm. And after the American Civil War, we find that the conventional religion, which had previously consoled the bereaved, seems less effective at comforting those whose loved ones had died without the good death of a family deathbed. Mm. And this post-war period saw the emergence of spiritualism and the idea of dying well shifted to a nominalist and obsessive interest in harbingers and portents and tokens of death. Chris, I'd actually expected that you were going to say that we start to see the fall off of portents in the late 19th century, but you're saying the opposite, that if anything, spiritualism yeah. and the, the ugly sister theosophy actually became more interested in this, or they gave it a special space. Absolutely, absolutely. There was a popular saying, coming events cast their shadows before. And what's funny is, oddly, about the same time we see an a huge increase in interest in life insurance. People wanted certainty. You talk about, you know, the uncertainty of death and the Civil War seemed to underscore that for a lot of people. This isn't just an American phenomenon. Omens of death were all over the world, of course. Yes, um, but yeah. for, for this, I'm speaking from American perspective. And omens of death could be anything. They could be a prophetic dream, a vision of phantom funeral, the sound of the spectral coffin maker, a woman in white, mysterious lights, or a knock from the banshee. Some of these legends, whatever we make of them, seem to me to be very beautiful. The Banshee, perhaps, among them. Some of them rather less so. I, I just cannot get excited about bats flying into windows, <laughs> coals or coals jumping out of yeah. fires. And yeah. I just wondered, just let's say for the sake of argument, I want to write a novel about the 19th century. Can you give me the most picturesque examples you've come across? I'm very, very fond of mortuary or funereal kinds of omens, uh, things that are associated with funerals and, and hanging crepe on the door, that sort of thing. Uh, phantom hearses, those are all very, very picturesque when you, you think of phantom hearses pulling up and then all of a sudden they're gone. They're kind of a forerunner to the actual event. Um, another case that I found that I absolutely love 
after the, a death in a 19th century household, a scarf or a ribbon of mourning fabric, crepe, would be hung on the door and it would be black for adults or white for children. And in my, any vision of this symbol of death was considered a death omen. And in one of my source files, there was a dying woman who called her husband to her bedside and asked him why he hadn't properly arranged the crepe on the door. And he said he hadn't put any there and didn't expect to. She said, no, you're wrong. I can distinctly see two separate pieces of crepe on the door, a white one and a black one. He thought she was delirious, but a few hours before her funeral took place, her younger daughter died. Mm. Hence the omen of the black and the white crepe. There's another story, which I also really enjoy. This woman and her maid, uh, 1859, I believe, they saw two black clad funeral mutes standing outside her husband's bedroom on the second story balcony. Now, a mute was dressed in a long black suit, headband of crepe around their tall top hat. They had scarves across their bodies and they carried what looked like brooms covered with black silk. And they were attendants of funerals. They were meant to look somber and they were professional mourners, basically. And these proved an omen of her husband's deaths. She wrote that, that she could, they watched them for about 20 minutes and they looked solid and gradually they sort of dissolved. And shortly thereafter, they got noticed that her husband had died very, very suddenly. She said, and I thought this was quite interesting, these strange warnings for eye and ear were no doubt mercifully sent to me to break the severity of the shock, which news of a sudden death must have given. So she sees value in a death omen as preparing someone, softening the blow, because they know what's about to happen. Chris, I'm reminded there by a story told by Marjorie Johnson. Marjorie Johnson, of course, was the great fairy seer who wrote a book we both know, Seeing Fairies, which has this extraordinary number of accounts from around the world, particularly the English-speaking world. And Marjorie Johnson, I think she lived till she was 101, but I think when she was in her 70s, there was one evening that she was lying in bed, and as often happened, the fairies came to her. And the fairies, she felt that they were comforting her. Hmm. And the day after her beloved sister, Dorothy, died, the two sisters lived together in the house. So there again, you have a death omen of types. The, I imagine the fairies stroking her hair or just being with the poor old Marjorie before she had this terrible experience the day after. And I suppose there as a, a skeptic as well, I would say that Marjorie Johnson, for me, a little bit like you, is in the class of super perceptive people. Not people I would necessarily say have supernatural gifts, but people who are so open to a certain set of experiences in life that they perhaps begin to sense things in their unconscious that aren't as clear to the rest of us. But anyway, this would be another example of a comforting omen. I had forgotten that story. That, that's quite a good one. There's also, if you want picturesque, since I'm interested in mortuary textiles, there's the second sight shroudings. <laughs> uh, people with second sight would see uh, the soon-to-be corpse wearing a shroud. And the death date was calculated to a nicety by calibrating the height of the shroud with how soon the person will die. The time is judged according to the height of it about the person, for if it is not seen above the middle, death is not to be expected for the space of a year and perhaps some months longer. And as it is frequently seen to ascend higher towards the head, 
death is concluded to be at hand within a few days, if not hours. Horribly specific. Chris, yes. that's a fascinating example. Do you know of any other examples of death omens where you can actually start to time death in that fashion? Well, let me read you this little story about the second sight calibration. This uh, fellow is listed only as Mr. McKay. There's a dash of anonymity. And he says, it was harvest time and I was standing in the field, which lies at the back of my house, looking on while the reapers plied their busy task. Struck by the superior dexterity of a young woman named Mary Cameron, who was working far ahead of her companions, I pointed her out to the foreman, then standing near to me. This man, who was said to have the gift of the second sight, steadfastly remarked her for a while, a moment or two, and then said, she is indeed a clever worker. Poor girl, I'm sorry to say this will be her last harvest. What do you mean, I ask? Why, that she will be dead in less than three months. Her winding sheet is already high upon her breast. Strange to say about the time specified by the overseer, the poor girl took fever and died. Simply awful. But can you think of any other examples other than the shroud of timing connected ah, to death? Owners? Time connected. Hmm. You know, we talk about a month and a day or, the, as I say, the shroud imagery is very, very specific. But in general, no, there's not. I don't recall anything. You do find people having these prophetic dreams saying, I'm going to die in three days, or I'm going to die on such and such a date. And there was actually an amusing story. This man was walking through the forest, and he heard a voice announcing the date and time of his death. He made all his preparations, had the minister in, and shortly before the time that was announced for his death, some men arrived with some bills that had been long unpaid, and he paid them just to get everything taken care of. And the fatal hour arrived, and one of the bill collectors began to laugh. He said, here, old man, get out of your bed. We saw you weren't going to pay those bills, so we notified you of your death. I hid in the woods at night and told you as you passed. Now, that sounds like an urban legend, but there are plenty of people who did say, I'm going to die. In one case, the poor woman laid there for at least eight years. You know, she kept saying, oh, well, it's been put off. It's been put off. Uh, wash my shroud again, please. <laughs> Um, there are examples in early Christianity. I'm thinking of one specifically where the, one of the early archbishops of Canterbury, this is in the seventh century, is Theodore. And Theodore, according to Bede, who was writing the eighth century, so a century afterwards, Theodore had been told in a vision early in his life the day of his death. He worked all his life knowing exactly when he would die. Uh -huh. I think it was many decades in the future, but I believe there were other parallels of that in early Christianity. It was a gift given to certain Christian yes. mystics. And they always signaled their passing with like doves ascending or lights being seen in the sky. So they had some of uh, some similar death omens because you, you find birds, you find doves, mysterious doves, and you find bursts of light also balls of fire. There's a whole genre of balls of fire signaling that someone has died or is about to die. There are certain things that reappear again and again, things with wings, moths, butterflies, birds, mm -hmm. presumably because of their resemblance to the soul, the idea that the soul will fly free. I see something very clearly as you're speaking now that I wasn't aware of when we were writing to each other about the possibility of doing this podcast. I felt that this subject 
outrage me in some ways because I'm not very keen on death. And maybe you've picked this up. I'd much rather study a good old poltergeist or a fairy case than a haunting related to a violent death, say. However, Mm. I think there's something else that bothers me here. I'm made very uncomfortable by the idea that you can predict the future. I find the whole idea of precognition in dreams or with omens just very, very disturbing. And I race to try and explain them as best I can. Obviously, you have a very great interest in death. You've written books on this subject. You have a great interest in ghosts, the survival of death. But aren't you bothered by this idea of precognition? I I find it somewhere inside a little bit offensive as an idea. Hmm. I don't find it offensive. I find it just an interesting thing to study because so many people have these same kind of experiences. There have been hundreds of cases, thousands of cases of what we would call, the, what the Society for Psychical Research would call crisis apparitions, where someone shows up at your bedside and you see that, uh, oh, that's my brother. He's supposed to be in India. Hmm, I'll note down the time. <laughs> and you note down the time and then you get a letter saying he died at exactly that time in India with the time difference accounted for. So many stories like that. Are they just urban legends? I I find it really difficult to believe that everybody was writing into the Journal for Society of Psychical Research with these stories just for the hell of it. I find those stories much less disturbing, actually, because, Ah. again, even from my position as a skeptic, I find it much easier to accept ideas of telepathy. And so the Mm. idea that a loved one in India at the moment of crisis, the moment of death, travels to see his mother or his sister, or I find that, I have to confess, strangely comforting. And so Ah. whether it's absolute nonsense or not, Mm. I have no idea. But aesthetically, let's say, I'm with it. I'm up for this. (laughs) <laughs> Whereas when we start to have precognitive dreams, my, my, my whole sense of the universe is trampled on and outraged. And for that reason, I, I find it disturbing. L- let, let me give you some lip. Let me start to push back a bit. Um, <laughs> it, it's certainly true what you say about crisis apparitions, that they are attested from throughout the world. They're a fascinating genre. And perhaps we should leave these aside for their own episode because yeah. it's just such an interesting. I think it's one of these rare instances where you and I might actually almost see eye to eye on this. However, as far as death omens go, yes, there are death omens in every traditional society. And yet they vary from place to place. For instance, you could get a map of Great Britain and you could map out the different omens from different places. You've already mentioned, for example, the idea of lights in Wales being corpse candles, something that you also find. We have a fascinating, I think, 16th century reference for the Isle of Man and adjacent territory. In Western Ireland, there are lots of references where fairy lore gets mixed up with death omens. So not only do we have the banshees, but we also have these wonderful accounts of fairies being seen in a funeral procession, which mimics a funeral procession that passes several days later. And I, I suppose what I'd say then is death omens universal? Yes. Universally similar? No. Every region seems to have its own take on this. And -hmm. something that would cause utter fear in one place would just probably pass almost without notice in another. Yeah, that's true. But why should that? I mean, there's cultural differences in all beliefs 
in different regions. I mean, you've you've mapped out the boggarts in only certain areas, and nobody outside that area either knows what a boggart is. So why should this be any different? Yeah, I take your point that if, for example, we were to look at the social supernatural and put it on a map of Europe, we would find names change everywhere, mm-hmm. uh, and also to some extent the characteristics of different types of fairies, be it trolls in denmark be it pixies in the southwest so okay right. okay yeah. I, I, yeah. I take this back i take it back quickly <laughs> I, I guess i don't know what's offensive about people saying hey i'm going to be dead in half an hour and then they go lie down and they die in half an hour you're going to make me regret saying the word offensive now in fact i regretted it almost as soon as i said <laughs> but, but i mean President Lincoln, President Abraham Lincoln looked in a mirror and saw this corpsey face, this fetch of himself that seemed to predict his death. And he had other other dreams that uh, he dreamed supposedly about his own coffin lying in state in the White House. So, yes, yes. I don't know what to make of it all, um, but I don't find it offensive to think that there's all kinds of, we could get into all kinds of woo about parallel universes and different outcomes. It's just impossible for us to really know. Even people who study quantum physics and things don't really know. Yeah, that nobody knows I completely agree right. about. But yeah. when, I, when I said offensive, what I really perhaps wanted to say was this. If this is true, my entire universe crumbles. Oh. And it, that, that's never a nice place to be in. And uh, expect a little bit of resistance because for me, the very okay. idea of precognition is disturbing. Now, the idea that a president towards the end of a civil war in which America had done terrible damage to itself, that a president coming to the end of that period wouldn't have a sense of foreboding. I, I have no problem explaining that. I don't think it even needs to be a supernatural explanation. And the chances that in that extraordinarily bitter atmosphere after the civil war that some young man decided to take a a pistol and do something with it also perhaps shouldn't be a surprise and i think that this is where precognition isn't necessarily precognition it's just something that you find among sensitive individuals very perceptive individuals particularly when the unconscious starts to get involved so for example in dreams where if you were, for example, you're someone I greatly esteem and you're someone who I think of as being sensitive um, and perceptive, if you were to have a dream tomorrow about your death, I would be worried not because I believe in precognition, but because I believe in your powers of observance and perception, if that makes sense. (laughs) We can debate that question. Would you want to know? And I think that might be part of your uncomfortableness with this is you do not want to know. And I can't blame anybody for not wanting to know. I I think if I knew that I'm going to die in three days, I would run around cleaning the house or something and <laughs> trying to get my papers in order. And that would not be a very edifying death. <laughs> it just yeah. seems like I would be distracted. But I have come across as a minority opinion down the years 
now that deaths from cancer particularly become much more common and sometimes these very unpleasant neurological orders that drag out, not, I'm not saying that people welcome it, but I think some people, we have that yeah. phrase, of course, in English, time to say goodbye. Yes. The idea that you do gather your loved ones together. And here we go into the the whole area of mortician psychology, but is it Kubler-Ross, the, the, the different stages of preparing for death, the need to say sorry to people you've wronged, the need to... Oh, no, 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 no. You need to take revenge before you go. <laughs> well, I, I, I certainly... Forget the know, apologies. I was going to say, I'm certainly not waiting out for any apology from you, but, the, but in general, there are some people who would prefer for things to be a little bit slower, perhaps. And I I suppose their death omens, death omens too, have their logic. Yeah. If you absolutely had a diagnosis, I I would think that, and and hospice, for example, tries to facilitate, is there any unfinished business, anyone you want to speak to, apologies to be made? And they try to facilitate that on, on some level. It doesn't always work because some people are simply too far gone for that to actually be helpful to. But I think we we do agree that whether or not death omens are a thing with any kind of supernatural logic to them, they're, they're rather less common in our death-shy society. I, I think we, we would agree on that. In the 19th century, you can barely read a newspaper without coming across an account somewhere. And we'll talk a little bit later about the extraordinary number that you've gathered together over the years. Whereas today, they're more in private family circles. It seems as though that's the case. Uh, although I, I know my grandfather knew when he was about to die. And he went around saying, I want this done, I want this done, I want this done. And my husband and I looked at each other and went, he knows he's going to die. And sure enough, he dropped dead in his garden a few days later, which is a good way to go, frankly. Yes, absolutely. Uh, No no muss, no fuss, no long hospitalization. Uh, He had no ill health. We had no knowledge of this. And uh, we were kind of surprised that he was saying, basically preparing for death, but he did. So he knew. I don't think he let my grandmother in on the secret because she was quite startled. I'm reluctant to do it with your own grandfather, but so let's talk about it slightly more generally. But this brings us to the fascinating concept of nocebo. So we have placebo, the idea that you can take sugar tablets and, and get over many ills. In other words, the power of suggestion. But of course, the power of suggestion works in the other direction as well. And if you're a very strong magical system or you indulge in certain types of magical thinking, a certain impression can be very, very strong. And at that point, if you really do believe that the pieces of coal that jump out of the fire if they're in the shape of a coffin, denote a death, that could clearly start to work on your own psyche. I mean, have you come across examples where you think that's happening? That, that to me, seems a more likely explanation in many cases. There were definitely cases of self-fulfilling prophecies. Uh, there was even at least one case I've run across where this woman gassed herself because there were knockings on the door in the net of, dead of night. And she told a person in the neighborhood, they were meant for her. So she knew she was going to die, but she wanted to die on her own terms. There was also a, a really horrific case where this young woman uh, was claimed to be a spiritualist medium. She predicted the death of her brother. And to fulfill that prophecy, she murdered him. No, that, that, that sounds also, to me like pure urban legend. No, it? no, no. This the, I have accounts of the trial. Can't recall if she got off because of an insanity plea. 
<laughs> but it was quite the scandal because some people said, oh, no, she planned this out. She's not insane. And other people said, oh, she couldn't have done this unless she was insane. There was well, another young woman named Hattie Eager, who was a, a spiritualist medium who predicted her own death. And when it didn't happen, she committed suicide to show people the truth of spiritualism. She didn't want people to be disillusioned. Right. And that caused quite a ruckus in the spiritualist community. They were sort of debating whether that was her fate or not. I suppose, again, I'm trying to chip away at these death omens and make them a little bit less disturbing for me. And let, let's go with the rooster that crows in the middle of the night. I mean, there are lots of these. Or, um, or the dog howling. Or the dog howling. Yeah, this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Let, let, let's go with this. I mean, the great thing is if this happened today in my village, we, we have the village rooster who doesn't always behave himself. <laughs> and if, if the rooster were to decide to break into song at midnight, I can imagine my Italian neighbours being a little bit wrought. But let, let's go back a century to a time when that would have been taken as a death omen. This is a village of several hundred people. Someone's going to die. Someone's going to die, yes. So this is the other way in which death omens work really quite well. If you're in a small rural community. Very few rural communities are so small that in a month and a day, to use your timetable from before, Mm. someone doesn't hop off this mortal coil. And I suspect that particularly with these more general omens, they were clung on to, they were a valuable part of, of life for traditional communities. But surely we don't have to worry ourselves too much about explaining them. They become more a social belief that needs to be examined, but not one that has need of any special supernatural insight. Yeah, I think you make a very good point there. The things like death watch beetles, birds hitting the window or a picture falling off the wall, clocks starting or stopping. Yeah, those are the really, really common death omens and being mysterious knockings. I mean, you've got a house settling or something. Some of them are not so easily explained, but you make a good point for the ones that are more domestic in nature. I mean, of course, my point breaks down entirely if you're talking about a family omen, because Even in the big 19th century families, it's true that families could be 25, 30 people when you think about cousins, aunts, uncles, Mm. and all the many kids. So there is a bigger sample. But for instance, probably the most famous death omen, the Banshee. The Banshee was someone who was associated with individual families. In other words, if someone saw the Banshee, in the village, it was known she belonged to that family. Um, mm-hmm. And there were many similar cases of family death omens in England and indeed in every other country. Clearly, I know the English ones. You'll know the American ones. But there, the odds start to be a little bit longer. There, I think the fact that someone within a group of 20 or 25 or 30 dies within the space of a month starts to become rather more remarkable. Of course, if no one dies, then the omens put down as a misinterpretation. So there are also these other mechanisms that start to kick in. Yeah, there are some people who say, well, you know, we heard the Banshee. Who was it for? Somebody's got to die. And of course, eventually they report that somebody dies just Mm. because they have to have some closure on that. Now, you talk about Banshees in America. They're the only fairy that I've found that reliably crossed the ocean with the immigrants. And there's some families over here who still claim they had had banshees. You find accounts of people going to the hospital and saying, oh, I heard the banshee, I'm a goner. So 
take care of me. But the real banshees are much more common in the European papers. And if you read about them in the United States press, they mention them only in connection with folklore or superstition, an Irish legend. And I've only collected a handful of real banshee accounts in the United States, which is far fewer than I would have expected, given how many 19th century Scottish and Irish immigrants there were to this country. There was a really fascinating one from Dayton, Ohio. Uh, 1876, a young man named James Murphy was condemned to death for murder. And he told a deputy he knew that he was going to be hanged during the trial, even before the verdict. Because one night between 12 and 1, he heard the voice of a woman crying weirdly and wildly in the darkness. Other men heard it too and awoke and shuddered. They knew what it was. And he saw the woman who was crying. He interpreted what would have otherwise been called a banshee as the ghost of his mother crying for him. So it was almost like he's in America. So the banshee has to take a different turn. Mm. I mean, you said that you've been surprised how few cases you've found, but you and I both know that there are very few fairy cases that make it across right. the Atlantic. And so right. actually within the sample of fairy cases, banshees are by far the best represented of the British mm-hmm. or Irish fairy family, let's say, very broadly. Mm-hmm. I was talking before about this example of the 7th century, and I just wanted to run this by you. And perhaps this is my last attempt to deal with death omens in a way that's congruent with my view of the universe. But I've sometimes wondered with these predictions, and I'm thinking here especially of early Christian sources, that whether there's a little bit of confusion between a prediction and a curse. I'm particularly Mm -hmm. familiar with this from the lives of medieval saints. And here I'm especially thinking of Irish saints, of which I used to be something of a connoisseur. Very often Irish saints would wake up in the morning or or they'd come round after prayer. They'd have their little shamanic experience and they would say, oh my goodness, Aid MacDonald will not see this Easter. And it was never quite clear to me in the text whether God had told them Aid MacDonald's about to die or whether this was the saint mightily pissed off who was saying, that's it. He's done for. And Irish saints were a particularly cantankerous bunch. They were. They They had no problems cursing and killing in that respect. So do we ever have that confusion? Because you see, for me, it works better because there we're not talking about precognition. We're talking about some bizarre form of telepathy. And telepathy, I can deal with. I don't see a lot of cursing involved in death situations except in witchcraft cases, at least in America. I'm sure there's plenty in Europe. I just don't see a lot of it in the American tradition. Most of these people who know when they're going to die just have a premonition. Nobody cursed them. Some little four-year-old says five days previous to his death, he was in the best of health, came to his papa and said, Papa, I'm going to be sick, awfully sick, and I'm going to die. And then five days later, he's dead. What would make a child say that? Not a curse, for sure. Uh, And as I said, there's a lot of people who just seem to know when their time has come and they try to prepare. I'm, I'm very in awe at some of the care that these folks take. It's like, okay, well, let's arrange this and let's get the funeral flowers arranged for. And I've got a coffin stowed in the barn and we're all set to go. No problem. And then they lay down and they're dead. But uh, curses just don't seem to enter into 
much of what I've been reading about death omens or predictive dreams. Look, as we come to the end, is there anything you want to round off with? I wanted to mention what an extraordinary variety. You know, you were talking about we could map out the different death omens in England, and you run across so many unusual and perhaps hundreds of different death omens. I've put some of these in my source file. There were omens like a phonograph record breaking. You had a person saying that this family was very clean and tidy in their ways, and all of a sudden the dying person was infested with lice. There are a number of stories about partridges being omens of death or misfortune. And I, I'm not sure if this is related to the belief that you can't die when you're sleeping on wild bird feathers, yes, that, that sort of thing. Mm. There's, there's just immense numbers. If you dream of blackberries, if you dream of a naked man, if you dream of smoke, if you cut a new window in an old house, if you take ashes out of a stove after sundown, if you look backwards while in a funeral procession, sneeze three times in succession, or comb your hair in the dark, these are all considered to be death omens in some lists. question that follows on from this is our listeners should any of our listeners be foolish enough to want to collate death omens for their own interest, where would they go? Where, I found it quite difficult to prepare for this podcast because I've built up a certain modest knowledge over the years, but I found it tricky to find people who'd actually written about it. What kind of sources can we advise here? Number one would be uh, Dr. Helen Frisbee's work. She's worked, worked extensively on death omens in England and just does a really brilliant job at collating all of the different types. I've got in my own personal collection, I would estimate I've got about 500 pages closely typed of death omens that I've collected. And I've edited that down. So there's a source file on my academia page. Uh, we'll, we'll, clearly, we'll put it we'll the link to this. Yes. Yeah. And it, it covers things in a topical way. There's animal, vegetable, and mineral, plus things like textiles and clocks and funereal symbolism. <laughs> but you've broken it down thematically. Did I understand correctly? Yes, that's that's correct. Um, this is the difference between you and me. You see, I, I would just do it chronologically, but you, oh. you're much more serious about death. So you <laughs> let, no, let me hear the headings again, because this is just sublime. So you have it, animals, minerals. Animal, vegetable and mineral, plus things like textiles and clocks and funereal symbolism. Uh, there's a lengthy bit on bees. And I've written a, a lot of blog posts on various death omens and tokens, and I've listed them in the bibliography of the source file as well, because I don't know who else is collecting these things. I've also got very lengthy lists that were collected by folklorists either in the 19th or early 20th century. People were fascinated by these things. There's a book called Folklore of Adams County, Illinois, and it's just list after list after list of death omens. One of them was about if a woman who's been sewing puts her thimble on the table as she sits down to eat, it's a sign she'll be left a widow if she marries. What the hell is that about? You know, every woman probably sits down, or is that supposed to be a, a cautionary tale? Put it back in its sewing box, put it back in the thimble case, or you're a slattern. I'm not sure whether how much of this is actually morality. You have to wonder why. 
some of these. Everybody combs your hair at night. It said if someone combs your hair, one of you will die within the year. That extends it to nearly everybody in the world, I would think, at that time. Absolutely. So strange. One area of death omens that we didn't really get into is that we've been concentrating on death omens that happen to you. Clearly, you don't have much control of whether a coffin-shaped coal jumps out of the fire. But there are also, and you've mentioned a couple of these towards the end, the death omens where where you you in, you break a rule, and the result of this is death. Right, and you might call that a kind of a curse. Think of um, three on a match, first World War superstition. Now, is that just a sensible precaution? You break that rule, somebody's going to get killed. The author, H.H. Monroe, Saki, was killed after somebody lit up and he said, put out that bloody light. So, yeah, how much of this is actually trying to control people's behavior? I don't know. There was a, a really interesting list in Belgravia magazine, and I've lost the date, where they're complaining about the superstition. We've only gathered here a few cases of familiar as well as less known superstitions to show the extent to which the minds of the ignorant were prepared for the charms of the wise woman and the supernatural efficacy of words and letters, as well as the narrowing and debasing effect of the daily life, which was agitated by every flight of a magpie and every midnight bark of a dog. So there were lots of criticisms that this stuff was just superstition But people were obviously upset about omens. You you do find uh, in one of Helen Frisbee's talks, it's, it's called Them Owls Know. So everybody's upset. We're hearing the owl. Who's it for? Mm. I will finish with one of my textile omen stories, I think. And this comes from, I believe, the Isle of Man. One lovely night, mother and daughter, Elizabeth and Florence McLeod, sat outside their home admiring the stars and the full moon. We returned to retrace our steps homeward when we saw the servant girl whom we'd left in the house come forth from it, covered over with a shroud of darkish hue. Stealing forth into the moonlight, she traversed the distance between us and the house as though wishing to frighten us. After thus pacing up and down for some little time, she suddenly disappeared. On our return, we asked the girl what she meant by such foolish conduct, whereupon she declared that she had never once crossed the threshold. Shortly afterwards, she was seized with smallpox and died, and her shroud being made of unbleached linen answered to the description I have given of the garment in which she appeared on the night in question. You've been listening to Bogger and Banshee, a supernatural podcast. If you've enjoyed it, please leave a review, as it helps other people find us. Those cursed algorithms.